Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the par- parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you'd like to use one of the Bibles we provided for you, that's on page 868 there in the Bibles we provided for you. I want to go ahead and read verses 25 through 37 of Luke chapter 10. And before we do that, I just want to provide a little bit of context for you. So uh, two weeks ago, we were in Genesis 12, and we understand that God blesses his people so that they might in turn be a blessing to others. So as early as Genesis, we begin to see the mission of God unfold and the, the call for those who know God, who have been blessed by God, to then be a blessing to others. Last week, as Micah mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we saw the kindness of King David and how that gives us a picture of the greater kindness of God and how that kindness should motivate us to extend kindness to those we come in contact with. And now this week, we are going to examine what it means to give mercy to all people. And so let's read the parable of the Good Samaritan together. Uh, starting in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? To the man who fell among the robbers. He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The language of Good Samaritan has really been woven into the fabric of our society today. A simple search of last week's news proves this to be true. In Beaverton, Oregon, there was a good Samaritan who rushed to the aid of a six-year-old girl named Haley and really rescued her from a would-be kidnapper. In Houston, a good Samaritan donated a four-bedroom house to a family who was living in a storage shed with their six children. 
in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Three good Samaritans rescued a man from a burning car on I-394, and this one bites a little bit. In Philadelphia, there was a good Samaritan who received a parking ticket when he left his car to help an elderly woman who had just been run over. So that bites because that's just wrong. And it personally bites because I received a parking ticket in Davis Square this week. And that is not uncommon for you citizens of Somerville. So good Samaritan, when we think about what a good Samaritan is, we usually think of instances like these. It's someone coming to, to help a stranger or more specifically, coming to help a stranger in need. And as we look at this parable, that is certainly a key aspect of what Jesus is teaching here, but that is not the thrust of his message. See, the thrust of the message that Jesus gives here in this parable is that we are to be a neighbor. We are to be a neighbor. So, Let's look back at the passage. What we have here, starting in verse 25, is this lawyer who stands up to test Jesus. And he asks him this million-dollar question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus throws it back on him. He said, well, you're, a, you're an expert in the law. How do you read it? The lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's a good answer. Do this and you will live. That could have been the end of the conversation. And yet, this lawyer, it says in verse 29, seeking to justify himself, asks a follow-up question. He says, and who is my neighbor? You see, to cut to the chase, what the lawyer wanted to do is he wanted to justify his current view and his current practice of extending love to a certain group of people. He was looking for what we could call manageable righteousness. In short, he was looking to limit who his neighbor is. And what I love about Jesus, he is, again, such a wise teacher. He, rather than answering his question directly, he tells this parable, and in verses 36 and 37, we really see the thrust of the parable. Look back with that with me, if you will. He asked the question, after he tells the parable, which of these three do you think, don't miss these words, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You see, Rather than simply providing a definition of neighbor, Jesus turns the question on its head and he says, look, you just go and be a neighbor whenever you find someone in need. You see, the lawyer was looking to limit his love. Jesus, on the other hand, is liberating love. He's saying, you can be as liberal as you want to be when it comes to love. I'm talking like way out on the left wing here. We can be like super ultra liberal when it comes to loving our neighbor. See, when we understand the love of God, we begin to understand that love sets no limits on who or how 
they will love. Jesus says, in effect, to this lawyer, rather than having a selective spirit, rather than kind of putting a fabricated criteria on who you will and will not serve, why don't you just be a neighbor and extend love to everyone? He says, you should always be in a ready position to serve. You should always have the attitude that now is the time to serve someone else. Now is a good time to put someone ahead, above yourself. And so let, let me ask the question this morning. Do you limit your love? Or do you love without limits? Good news, the gospel, the kingdom, life in the kingdom calls us to love without limits. And so this is the first lesson that Jesus teaches this lawyer. He says, look, be a neighbor. Love for God and love of neighbor is going to look like this, just being ready to be a neighbor wherever you find yourself. But then number two, he does get at this question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus essentially answers the question by saying, be a neighbor to everyone. Be a neighbor to everyone. You see, the lawyer exposes the sinful nature of his heart when he asks the question, well, who is my neighbor? Again, he's trying to, to, to find a, a point of restriction. And he's thinking in two categories. He has two categories in mind. There is neighbors and non-neighbors. And so this is where Jesus begins to tell this all-familiar parable of the Samaritan. It says in verse 30 that there was a man going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. There is still today this 17-mile road that descends from Jerusalem, which sits about 2,000 feet above sea level, down to Jericho, which sits roughly 1,000 feet below sea level. And it is a windy and dangerous road. It's filled with caves and crags, and it's a perfect spot for robbers to hang out. And so this story that Jesus tells is completely realistic to those who would have heard. And he tells this, this story of this man who fell among robbers. He's beaten. He's stripped of his clothing. He is left half dead. What's going to happen to this man? Verses 31 and 32 tell us that by chance, a priest was going down this road. Now, this would have caused an air of hope to surface among those who heard the, linguistically, when it says by chance, there, there is uh, the idea that a, a note of fortune had fallen on this wounded man. And added to that, it's a priest. I mean, of, of all people, someone who knew the law of God, who served in the temple, who gave oversight spiritually to the people of Israel. I mean, surely this man would come to his aid. But rather than making a beeline for the wounded, bleeding, half-dead man, he does a wide turn. He goes to the opposite side of the road, and he passes by. 
The same is true for the Levite. Levites were those who served in the temple. They assisted the priests. And you would again think that, well, if the priest blew it, surely the Levite will take care of this wounded, bleeding, and half-dying man. And yet he, too, takes a wide turn, goes to the opposite side of the road, and passes by. You see, we would expect that they would come to this man's rescue. But Jesus exposes them for those who would prefer to insulate themselves from the needs of those around them. Now, before we're too hard on the priest and the Levite, it would be good for us to consider what we would do in the same situation. I mean, if you're walking down the streets of Boston, maybe you find yourself in the wrong part of town, and you're having to walk down a dark alley. I mean, would you stop if you saw someone in need? Oftentimes, the church is very guilty of becoming insulated and disconnected from the needs around them. So Jesus is calling us to something different. He is calling us to remember the words of Hosea 6.6, where God says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I mean, Jesus will quote Hosea 6.6 multiple times in the Gospels. Why? Because Jesus says, look, if you come on Sunday morning and your worship sounds really good among yourself, if you are not ready to extend mercy to those around you, it is like a stench in my nostrils. We can look really good on the outside, but if we do not extend mercy and help those who find themselves in need, then we betray the very faith that we profess. Verse 33 introduces a third person that encounters this naked and bleeding, half-dying man. And if Jewish listeners would have been surprised that the priest and the Levite passed by, they would have been shocked by what they find in verse 33. Jesus says, but a Samaritan. I mean, Jews listening, what is a Samaritan? A Samaritan? You have got to be kidding me. Surely Jesus must have misspoke here. He didn't mean to say a Samaritan. Why is that? Because Jews and Samaritans did not have a favorable view of one another. I mean, it would be an understatement to say that Jews looked down upon, considered Samaritans less than themselves. They viewed Samaritans as half-breeds, those that had intermarried with people from other cultures and had adopted the worship of false gods. And so the prevailing view of that day was those Samaritans, they are not like us. They do not look like us. They do not talk like us. They do not worship like we do. They do not deserve our help. And so Jesus tells the story of how this Samaritan comes to the rescue. 
And again, consider the wisdom of Christ. I mean, think, think about this. We would expect Jesus to teach this lawyer about neighbor love by placing the Samaritan in the position of need. We would expect to find a Jewish person coming to the rescue of a Samaritan, but Jesus heightens the effect of the story by placing the Samaritan as the one who is a true neighbor. You see that? In effect, he tells the story of the Samaritan coming to the rescue, the person who would not considered to be a neighbor, actually being a neighbor to show the Jews who their neighbor really is. You got it? The Samaritan is the one who is the neighbor, and Jesus, by giving him as the example, teaches the Jews that Everyone, if the Samaritans who are your enemies, you consider to be your enemies, should be considered your neighbor, then surely everyone should be considered a neighbor. You see, when God calls us to love our neighbor, he calls us to love without discrimination. Love sees beyond skin tone. It sees beyond personal preferences, and socioeconomic backgrounds. Love does not extend friendship and kindness based on who or who does not live in my neighborhood, who works at my company, who scored in the same percentile on their SAT. God's love calls us to love all people. And in the process, God, Jesus here, eradicates the category of a non-neighbor. He says, be a neighbor and be a neighbor to everyone. So here you have the command, be a neighbor. You have the extent of what it means to be a neighbor by Jesus saying, in effect, be a neighbor to everyone. And by the way, let me just pause there. This week at soccer nights, I mean, the everyone's of Medford will be at Hormel Stadium. We have people from all different backgrounds. We've seen the registration for me. All different backgrounds, all different faiths, all different ethnicities, multiple, multiple nations will be gathered there, hanging out, learning how to play soccer. It's going to be awesome. That's what we want to be as a church. We want our church to look like our community. I mean, I just say that every single Sunday. This is who we are. And so this is the extent of neighbor love. We love everyone. And then finally, how do we get this done? Jesus tells the parable to teach us that as well. He says, be a neighbor to everyone by showing mercy. Be a neighbor to everyone by showing mercy. You see, as Jesus unfolds the story of this Samaritan, he teaches us a major lesson on mercy. Again, verses 36 and 37 are key. When he asked the question, how does the, the lawyer answer? He says, the one who showed him mercy. I mean, after re-examining this parable, it might be more true to the text to call this parable the parable of the merciful Samaritan rather than the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, that doesn't presuppose that there's something bad about 
being merciful, of course, they go together, but the emphasis here is on extending mercy. When we think about mercy, when we talk about mercy, we're talking about giving of oneself to help someone else in the position of need. How do we see this in our passage? What does the Samaritan do? And verses 33 and 34 and 35 unpack this, and, and it's such a temptation to read through these verses and kind of blow by them and just label them as good. Oh, he did a good work. And if we do that, if we miss the details, the, the steps, the acts of mercy, we will collapse the effect of Jesus' story. What, is it, what does it say the, the Samaritan did? There, there are eight actions in all. Number one, foundationally, he had compassion. Verse 33, it says that when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion implies a deep feeling of sympathy or pity. Compassion is what drives us to merciful action. When someone possesses compassion, they become acutely concerned with the condition of those around them. This is what we see in the life of Christ. In Matthew 9, verse 36, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw the immense need that people had, and he had compassion on him. When we see the helpless and needy around us, do our hearts break? Are we stirred with compassion to actually do something about their need? It has to start with a heart of compassion. But then, number two, the text tells us that he went to him. Verse 34, the simple phrase, he went to him. You see, people in need need people to go to them. The ministry of mercy approaches others. It doesn't wait for the person in need to come to them. And this is so important for the church to hear. See, there is a great hindrance to the advance of God's mission in the church today, and it is the mentality that people will come to us if we keep having our Sunday services and, you know, meeting in community groups on Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursday nights and coming up Fridays and Mondays and Sundays and Saturdays, you know, we want to multiply, um, that they'll come to us. But here's just a, kind of a news flash for us today. Our friends, our family, are not going to come and to taste the goodness of God and to see the grace and mercy of Christ if we kick back in our spiritual recliners and sit on our hands and expect them to come to us. We have to go to them. This is the essence of what it means to be missional. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. So the church is to go out, to go to where the people are. Listen, this is kind of, here is, here is Redemption Hill Philosophy 101. We are not going to 
plan a million programs and have one million service projects every year, fill the church calendar with all kinds of things to do, and undercut your ability to be a missionary right where you are. Everyone has a sphere of influence, your work, your neighborhood, your friends, your family, to engage people with the love of Christ. And so sure, yeah, we're going to put on soccer nights, we're going to engage and serve effort, we're going to do a lot of things, but the idea is that there would be something very organic about how we live out God's mission so that we could go to people right where they are. Number three, he bound his wounds. Verse 34 says that he bound his wounds. Here he begins to meet his physical needs. The man was, was bleeding, he was wounded, he was beaten, and so he begins to provide medical care. Number four, it says that he poured oil and wine on him. The wine would have had a medicinal effect. It would have served to disinfect his wounds. And the oil would kind of serve as a, as a soothing agent to hopefully bring some relief in his pain. Number five, it says that he loaded him on his animal. It can be assumed that the Samaritan used his own wine and oil to serve this man. It can even be assumed that he maybe tore off some of his clothes to, to, to heal the wounds of the bleeding man. But what is explicit in verse 34 is that he, he actually put him on his own animal. See, I, I love this. He takes his own resources and he puts them to work for the person in need. He isn't consumed with, what is this going to cost me? And this is the heart of serving others. He didn't say, I would really like to provide some transportation for this man, but he might get my mule a little bloody. He didn't say, you know, I was planning to go down to Jericho, and so if I take my time and blow up my schedule and wear out my mule to take care of this guy, then I'm not going to be able to even complete my journey to Jericho in a timely manner. And you see, we do this all the time. If I have those people over with all their rambunctious kids, they're going to destroy our house. Or I'm not going to host a community group one night a week because, well, then, you know, how am I going to get everything that I need done the rest of the week? And so we, we calculate. We count the cost, and oftentimes the cost is too great. But those who are merciful, those who have compassionate hearts, aren't so much concerned with what it's going to cost them. They are just looking for a way to serve. The merciful are ready to sacrifice for the sake of others. Number six, it says that he took him to an inn and cared for him. This, the Samaritan continues to provide by, by providing shelter and seeing to his recovery. Number seven, it says that he paid for his stay and even provided extra money to help him recover. And so here we actually see him pull out his checkbook and provide some financial assistance. 
but, but, but what is more, he even goes to the innkeeper and says, here, here are two denarii, here are two uh, days of wages of my own that I want you to take care of him. And, and oh, by the way, if you have any more expenses, when I come back, I'll pay for those two. The merciful are willing to go the extra mile. And then number eight, we just said it, he indicated that he would follow up. And this is oftentimes the most difficult for us because it's, it's one thing for us to take the step of, of mercy toward a person in need, but then to actually come back and check on them and follow up. I mean, when we follow up with people, oftentimes that is the best context to deepen a relationship, to take a further step of displaying the love of Christ in the gospel. So we see in this story that the merciful Samaritan lives out the truth of 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18. It says this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the, the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The Samaritan is radically others-centered. If we are consumed with ourselves, we will not be ready to extend mercy to others. And so we are to be a neighbor. We are to be a neighbor to everyone, and we are to be a neighbor by showing mercy. Now let's bring this to the 021s, 02155 Medford zip code. What does this look like for us? There are people that are hurting in our city. There are people who have great need in our city. Do you ever take the T? I mean, do you ever ride the bus? Do you ever take the train? You can see it on the faces of people. People are stressed out. People can't pay their bills. People can't afford to send their kids to any kind of camp for summer, much less take some kind of summer vacation. God, help us to open our eyes to see the needs of those around us. And think about this. Extending mercy is, just, is not just simply opening up our wallet. I mean, that may, it, may be, it may involve that, but there are so many ways to extend mercy to people. How about lending a helping hand of service? How about lending a listening ear to those who are struggling? How about praying for that person in need? And better yet, praying with that person in their time of need. As we've highlighted today, we have some great opportunities to serve others, to extend mercy through soccer nights, through Serve Medford. And so these are big efforts to extend mercy, big opportunities to extend mercy. But here's what I want you to think about. Because what is this, what's this going to look like at the personal level for you? You are going to have an opportunity in this big opportunity to, to extend mercy to embrace smaller opportunities to extend mercy. So it's maybe this week having an eye 
for the kid who is always on the periphery of the group. He doesn't seem to connect. He doesn't have as many friends. And so maybe an act of mercy would be to include that kid, to help him foster some relationships with others. Maybe it is helping pick up a table and carrying it from one side of the field to the other. Maybe it's arriving a little early to chat with parents when they're registering their kids. Maybe it's just as simple as having a sincere heart when you serve. I mean, you, you know, most of us are going to have a long day of work before we get there. We're, chances are we're going to be somewhat tired. And so, you know, it's going to be tempting just to kind of go through the motions rather than serving with sincerity. Hey, here's another suggestion. How about learning people's names? Learn a kid's names. Learn a parent, a guardian, a grandparent's name to show concern and compassion, a personal interest in their experience. We have an awesome opportunity to extend mercy. While we will not be at the clinic, think about this, at Soccer Nights, we're not going to be declaring the gospel explicitly during the clinic itself. So that's not the motive here. There are a variety of reasons for that, but we're partnering with others in the city. It's a, it's a big effort. So, so you say, Tanner, well, why on earth show up? Like, why, why on earth share if we're not you know, going to be able to share the gospel and, and give these kids the, their, the greatest truth to meet their greatest need? Well, here are a few reasons. Number one, we're going to be displaying the gospel. This is how we conceive of mission. Declare, display. Declare, display. We need to both display the gospel and declare the gospel. These two should always be inseparable, one never becoming the crutch for the other. And so we have an opportunity to display the gospel. But then, number two, we're, we have an opportunity to build a healthy rela- uh, reputation for this church in the city. I mean, we're new here. I mean, wh- what do people know about Redemption Hill Church? Basically nothing, probably. And so we have an opportunity just to display the love of Christ. But then number three... As believers, we should always be prepared to share why we do what we do. And so it is not outside of the boundaries of soccer nights to, if you're having a conversation with that parent before the camp starts or after the the clinic ends, for for them to say, well, who are you with? Why are you here? And you say, oh, I'm a part of Redemption Hill Church. I'm a volunteer with Redemption Hill Church. They're a new church in the city, and they're just trying to share the love of Christ in a practical way. And perhaps that would lead to maybe a further conversation, maybe even a spiritual conversation to, to, to really share more about who Jesus is and how he's changed your life where you would want to give up time out of your busy week to come and serve others. And you say, well, what happens when that person, because this probably will happen, what happens when a skeptical person says, oh, you guys are just doing this because you want people to come to your church. I, know, I, I get it now. What are you going to say? Here's how I would respond. Well, we would love for a lot of people to come to Redemption Hill. In fact, we'd love for you to come next Sunday. Here's an invite card. (laughs) But if you never come, if none of these 150 kids and all of their family members never come to Redemption Hill, we'll be back next year. And we'll do it again. And we'll do it again. And we'll do it again. That's how you know your motives are pure. When you do it just for the sake of 
extending mercy. So, to close, let's go back to the first question that the lawyer asks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus teaches us that those who truly know the love of God, who truly love God, truly love one another, will necessarily display mercy with their life. This isn't earning God's love. This is reflecting that the love of God is truly present in our lives. And so let me ask you this morning, has the love of God been shed abroad in your heart? Do you know the love of Christ that was poured out for you on the cross of Calvary? When he, after living a perfect life, would die a cruel substitutionary death in our place, that all who would look to him and believe in him might have life, both abundant life here in this earth and abundant eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what the gospel offers us, and that is the motivation for our serving others. Listen to what Tim Keller says of the Samaritan, and, and listen especially to these two-pointed questions that he offers for our reflection. He says this, The one who showed mercy, the Samaritan, risked his safety, destroyed his schedule, and became dirty and bloody through personal involvement with a needy person of another race and social class. Are we as Christians obeying this command personally? Are we as a church obeying this command corporately? The final words of Christ in this parable, look in verse 37. And Jesus says to him, and he says to us, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can be instructed, but God, I pray that we would not just be instructed, that we would be compelled, stirred, that your spirit would work in our hearts in such a way that we would not just say, oh yeah, that's nice, I buy into that, without truly buying into that and letting that affect our week this week by serving others in our homes, in our workplaces, in a service opportunity like soccer nights. Lord, help us to display the love that we know in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.